Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to the Gospel of Matthew. We use these excursus episodes to dig a little deeper into something that we've encountered in a particular book of the Bible that we just didn't have the opportunity to deal with adequately within the time constraints of a normal episode. Most of our episodes at End of the Word are about 20 minutes long. So sometimes you just have to stick a flag in something and come back to it later as opportunity presents. And that's what we're trying to do here. In this excursus episode, I want to come back to something that Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 24. That's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. In the first half of chapter 6, Jesus was talking about religious hypocrisy. The point he's making there is that we're supposed to do all of our acts of righteousness, prayer included, before an audience of one. Now, here in the second half of that chapter, there's an obvious transition from speaking about our singular focus when it comes to acts of righteousness. Jesus now begins to speak about our singular allegiance when it comes to our values and ambitions in life. Listen to what he says. This is starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So in this passage, Jesus identifies money as a potential rival to God in terms of the ambitions and allegiances of the human heart. But of course, money isn't the only potential rival that we need to be aware of. Jesus said essentially the same thing about family in Luke 14. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, close quote. Now, hate is often used in Semitic discourse to highlight an emphatic choice, not this, but that. It's a way of underscoring the fact that some choices in this life are binary. You can only have one best friend. You can only have one top priority. You can only have one supreme loyalty. If you try to live a life with divided loyalties, eventually you're going to have to love the one and hate the other. That's just how life works, Jesus says. You cannot serve God and money. Just like you cannot serve God and wife or God and husband or God and children, there can only be one highest authority, one most important thing. Just like there can only be one sun in the center of your solar system. That's how physics works. The thing with the most gravity will claim the center and everything else will gather and arrange itself around that. So be careful what you put in the center. That's the main idea here in Matthew 6. Jesus is saying that money must be rejected as a potential rival to God. 
But of course, that leaves an awful lot unsaid when it comes to the subject of money. So in this excursus episode, I want to drill down a little deeper on this issue. Essentially, we're trying to answer the question, what else does the Bible say about money? We'll put this one in first. This is something the Bible says. The principle we've identified in Matthew 6, 19 to 24 is something that we all need to be aware of. The Bible says very clearly that money must be rejected as a potential rival to God. So write that in as number one. Write it down and then flip in your Bible, if you have one with you, to 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. The second thing that the Bible says about money is that it isn't evil in and of itself. We sometimes think that the Bible says that money is the root of all evil, but that isn't actually what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10 reads as follows. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, closed quote. So obviously that's pretty similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Money can't be your love. It can't be your desire. It can't be your life ambition or goal, because if it is, your life will be filled with darkness and shadow. I was at my middle daughter's high school graduation a while back, and it was surprising to me how many of the graduates listed making lots of money as their life goal. Uh, used to hear that once or twice, right, as the list of graduates was read off and you'd, you'd smile at the awkward teenage attempts at humor. But this was graduate after graduate after graduate. The MC of the event even remarked upon it. Heaven help us if we have a generation of young people whose driving ambition in life is to make a lot of money. Because it is awfully hard to make a lot of money without crushing other people underneath your feet on the way up the mountain. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It is the love of money. It is the craving for riches that plunges people into ruin and destruction. And that's what we have to watch out for. Money is a cruel master, but it can be a good and useful friend. And it is treated in the Bible as a blessing, not a curse. At the end of the Job narrative, which is held out in the Bible as both true in the sense that it happened, but also true in the sense that it serves as a parable for human life, after suffering a, a series of tragedies that sorely tested his faith, in the end, Job has his fortune restored, doubled actually by the blessing of God. Job 42 verse 10 says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Closed quote. I'll tell you this, a, a lot of modern day Bible scholars don't like that ending. They want the ending to be, Job died a poor and sick man, but he learned to be content with God alone. But that isn't how the Holy Spirit wrote the story. He said the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, why? Why would he, why would he say that? Because money isn't a curse. That's why. It's a blessing. That's really what the Bible says about money. The Bible is not anti-material. For crying out loud, the Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is not anti-material. God is the source and creator of all material. The problem with money in the Bible is actually a problem with us. We are inclined to worship the creation instead of the creator. That's the bottom line. We, we have a tendency to 
to worship the gifts instead of the giver. We're crazy like that. That's literally the definition of idolatry. Idolatry is when we treat a good thing as if it were a God thing. But, and here's the important thing for us to notice, that doesn't make the good thing a bad thing. Money isn't evil any more than family is evil. The problem isn't having money, just like the problem isn't having a wife or a husband or a child. The problem is when we worship those good things as if they were God things. That's the problem. So money in the Bible is treated as a good thing that sinful people tend to value incorrectly and pursue inappropriately. That's the issue. But money itself is good. God created it, and people are still going to have it even in eternity. Did you know that? In Revelation 21, verse 24, when the Bible is describing the new heavens and the new earth, it talks about the new Jerusalem, which will be the capital city of the restored universe. And the Bible says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, that's a pretty clear allusion to Isaiah 60, where it talks about the kings of the nations bringing their wealth as an offering to God in Jerusalem at some point in the future, the future from the perspective of Isaiah 60. Leading Bible scholars like G.K. Beale to declare in his commentary on Revelation 21-24, this apparently is intended to be understood as literal wealth coming from the nations, close quote. So, there is going to be money and wealth in eternity. We're going to dig stuff up out of the earth and make things and accumulate things. But the good news is we aren't going to worship those things like sinners do now. Rather, we're going to worship with those things, just as we were created and intended to do in the beginning. Thanks be to God. All right, the third thing the Bible says about money is that it's good to have a little and dangerous to have a lot. There's a fantastic prayer in Proverbs chapter 30 that goes like this. This is verse 8 and also verse 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Closed quote. That's absolutely brilliant and and remarkably similar to the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer, right? Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. So according to the Bible, it's good to pray for enough. We should pray that because it's, it's good to have enough money to pay your bills and buy your groceries and fill up the car with gas. If you can do all of that and still have a few dollars in your pocket before the next paycheck comes, according to the Bible, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You should be praying for that, and you should be working for that. The Bible says that God gives us money by giving us the ability to make money. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. By the way, I love how that's worded. Right alongside the reminder that God gives us the power to get wealth is the reminder that we must worship God and not the wealth he gives us the power to get. The Bible is just constantly mindful of our tendency to worship the gifts instead of the giver. But, but here, the simple point is that God doesn't just, just give us wealth. Rather, he gives us the power to get wealth. Remember, we were created from the beginning with the ability to cultivate, with the mandate to cultivate. We were created by God and given a great world with tremendous resources. And then God says, 
Go till the ground and keep it, right? Work the raw materials. Use your intelligence and ability to make wealth. That same basic approach can be seen in the New Testament. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat, closed quote. Now, the key word there, obviously, is the word willing. A person who is disabled obviously can't work. They may be very willing to work, but they cannot. Paul isn't talking about that person. He's just saying, in line with Deuteronomy 8, that God isn't the welfare department. He is the resource and training department. He wants you to make wealth with the gifts and opportunities that he supplies. And then he wants you to use that wealth to take care of yourself and to take care of your family. The Bible says, this is 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, closed quote. So the faith of the Bible assumes that you are going to work it assumes that you're going to accumulate some wealth, and it assumes that you're going to use that wealth to look after yourself and your family. None of that is bad. All of that is good. And all of that comes from the Lord, thanks be to God. So it's good to have a little bit of wealth, but it's dangerous to have more than you need. We saw that in the prayer of Proverbs 30 as well. He asked for enough money, but not too much, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? It's very dangerous to be rich, according to the Bible. Rich people are tempted to think that they don't need God. Rich people are tempted to think that they're better than other people. Rich people are tempted to trust in themselves rather than in the grace and mercy of God. That's why Jesus said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19, 23 to 24. You know, listen, it, it's, it's human nature for us to want to give our children and grandchildren all the good things that, that we didn't have when we were kids. I totally get that. We, we want to give them that beautiful lakefront cottage. We want to give them the boat that goes along with that and, and the jet ski too. And the new car when, when each of the kids and grandkids turns 16 and the, and the trips to Europe and the McMansion in the suburb. We want to give them that. And there's something good in that instinct, we're supposed to care for our families, but we often forget to factor in Matthew 19, 23 to 24. Because according to Jesus, making our, our kids and our grandkids rich, providing them with a wealthy lifestyle, might actually be the greatest unkindness we could ever do. It, it might make them happier for the next 20, 30, or 40 years, but it might also cause them to be miserable and in agony in the dark, away from God for all eternity. So why in the world would we want to do that? Instead, we should probably be praying the prayer of Proverbs 30 over our kids and grandkids. Oh God, give my loved ones neither poverty nor riches. Give them that which is needful. May they always have enough. But do not give them so much that they forget you, nor so little that they be tempted to steal and defraud and so dishonor you and bring shame upon themselves, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a good prayer. Because according to the Bible, it's good to have a little money and dangerous to have a lot. Fourth thing the Bible says about money is that it can be used to open doors in eternity. Jesus gave the, the same teaching that we started out with in Matthew 6 in Luke's gospel in chapter 16. 
He was making the same point, but in a different context and with some different illustrations. So in Luke 16, 13, he said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, close quote. Okay, we've seen that before, but like I said, this time he used a different illustration. He told the story of the dishonest or incompetent manager. He talks about a guy who squandered his master's wealth through poor management and was therefore about to be fired. And to save himself and provide for his retirement, he uses his master's resources to curry favor with some of his master's wealthy clients, figuring that they would look after him when he was unemployed. And Jesus commends him as an example for us to follow. Listen to the application that Jesus makes. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, close quote. That's arguably the most incredible thing Jesus ever said. It's absolutely paradigm busting. Jesus doesn't say that it's wrong to have wealth. The point of this parable is not that it was good for the manager to swindle his, his billionaire master because, you know, who in the world should have that kind of money anyway? Jesus could have made that point, but he, he didn't. He makes one simple and absolutely astonishing point. He says, use whatever money you have at your disposal to open doors for yourself in the eternal kingdom. Are you hearing that? Use money now to open doors for yourself in the future because the future is going to be different than the present. Jesus said that all the time, right? Matthew 19, 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. The final judgment is going to completely upend human life and society. There are going to be a lot of people who are poor now living the vita loca in the eternal kingdom. So you want to be friends with those people. They're going to be managing five cities and overseeing thousands of properties and mansions in heaven, and you may need a job. That's literally the punchline of this parable. The poor old lady living on the garbage dump outside of Cairo who loves Jesus and collects plastic bottles to sell so she can help support the single mom in the tent next door is going to be absolutely loaded in the eternal kingdom, so it would be wise to do something nice for her. That will improve your own experience in eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Money given to the Lord's little ones now will result in blessing and increase for you later. Now you say, Pastor Paul, I'm not sure I like that. You sound a little crass right now. I'm not sure the kingdom of God works like that. This sounds a little tit for tat. Well, hey, listen, you're, you're welcome to think that. But as for me, I'm sticking with what the Bible actually says. Old Testament and New this principle is clearly taught. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. That sounds pretty straightforward to me. Give to the poor now. Receive back from the Lord with interest in eternity. Done. Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament. Matthew 10.42 Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So, Old Testament and New. Anything given to the Lord's little ones now will result in blessing and increase in eternity. I, 
I didn't write the Bible, but I can read the Bible. And that is precisely what the Bible is saying. You can use worldly wealth to open up doors in eternity. And then the last thing we should probably say is that money can also be used to do good things in the here and now. Flip over in your Bible to Acts 4, 34 to 35. There's a little snapshot there of the church in its early and ideal state. The text says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Close quote. That's an incredible story. It's, it's, it's an amazing story, particularly if you know the backstory. As we learn in Acts 5, there was a huge influx of people, many of them poor widows, coming into the church in Jerusalem at this time. That's what led people to sell their property, to make these donations in the first place. What was happening was that many of the people who had come to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost and who were then subsequently converted by the preaching of Peter, you remember 3,000 people were baptized on that one day, Many of those people were staying. They wanted to be discipled. And, and of course, there was no Christian church for them to attend back in Rome or in Corinth or in Athens or wherever they had come from. So they relocated to Jerusalem. And of course, they didn't have jobs. Some of them didn't even speak the local language. So they were completely dependent on the church, at least in the short term. And so people stepped up. They sold properties. At the end of Acts chapter 4, it gives an example of that. It says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Closed quote. That's Acts 4, 36 to 37. So to make a modern day comparison, this would be like if revival broke out in your town and, and a thousand people got saved and, and baptized on a single weekend. And, and now all of a sudden your church needs like five more staff persons, five staff deacons to, to care for those people, maybe two, two more pastors. And now they need to run the kitchen seven days a week and they need to do all of that immediately to take care of these folks. They don't have time for a fundraiser. They can't wait for the Christmas offering. So someone in your church makes the decision. They're going to step up. They're going to sell their cottage by the lake or their condo in Florida. And they're going to take the proceeds and lay that at the feet of the elected elders. They're going to say, here's, here's $2 million, brothers. Use it to care for these dear folks. Wow, right? I mean, no wonder they gave Barnabas the nickname Son of Encouragement. That's the sort of thing that was happening in the early church. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that all the early Christians sold their properties. Christians weren't communists. We know that because in the first couple of centuries, almost all the churches were meeting in people's houses. At the end of the Apostle Paul's letters, for example, he's often found giving greetings to the person who hosted the church gathering. So Colossians 4.15 says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Close quote. Notice that he doesn't say, and don't forget to rebuke Nympha for owning a house. Rather, he says, greet her. Show honor to her for making her home available to the people of God. We see that again and again and again in the New Testament. And we see it, of course, also in archaeology. Most of the churches we know about from the first several generations met in larger houses. So to state the obvious, owning a large house is not a sin. In fact, it can be very helpful. Have you got a large house? You might want to hold on to that because we may need it in the not-too-distant future. 
it is not at all inconceivable to me that at some point in the future, the government might declare Sunday a carbon zero day. No driving for any purpose whatsoever. Well, that's going to be a problem for a lot of churches. About 90% of the people in my church drive more than five kilometers to get to the sanctuary on Sunday morning. And I imagine it's probably the same for you at your church. So if, if something like that were to happen, all of a sudden, we're not going to be able to, to get 400 or 600 or 1,000 people together under one roof. We would need in that situation to transition immediately to being 10 or 20 or 30 or, or 50 churches of 30, 40 or 50 people meeting in larger homes. So if you've got one, hold on to it because somebody from your church might be knocking on your door sometime soon saying, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> Just like the Lord had need of that donkey on Palm Sunday. So it's not a sin to have things like that. But it is a sin to hold on to them when the Lord tells you to release them. Use what you have to advance the Lord's work and to bless the Lord's people in the here and now. The bottom line, my friends, is this. Money is a good tool and a bad God. So use it as such. Use it to take care of your family. Use it to open up doors for yourself in eternity. And use it to do good to everyone and especially to the household of faith. Receive it as a gift and give your praises to the giver. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special excursus episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. Of course, the best way to manage all of this content is to find the Into the Word app wherever it is that you find your apps. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. It'd be great to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. <laughs>